1: plushcare.com slash loss In this episode of The Bell Tale stitched up how the RUC the judiciary and the Northern Ireland establishment framed an innocent man for murder
2: I would say possibly probably and that went down as a statement of fact now the whole confession from beginning to end was Capstick's wording
1: A judge's daughter Patricia Kern, was found dead in the garden of her family home. I do remember finding Patricia's body. This gave me a a great shock. She'd been stabbed 37 times. The frenzied attack on the 19-year-old student shocked Northern Ireland. The police were under pressure to get their man. She came from an important family. Her father had been a Unionist MP, Attorney General, and was now a High Court judge. The Royal Ulster Constabulary were under considerable pressure So an innocent man, Ian Hay Gordon, was framed. From the moment he arrived, Capstick was going to solve this case in the
0: shortest possible time. Certainly somebody on his behalf came along and asked if they could uh, interview Ian Gordon. We, We also said at the time that we would very much prefer it if an RAF officer could be present during the interview.
2: I never had any opportunity to see an RAF officer or a family or a friend I knew I I was innocent. I hadn't killed Patricia Curran. If if you don't confess, all your past sexual life will come out and it will kill your mother.
1: In this episode of The Bell Tell, we look at the shocking killing of Patricia Curran and how Gordon, a young Scot doing his national service in the RAF, was intimidated into signing a false confession, found guilty but insane, and sent to an institution. I'm joined by journalist Stephen Gordon... Who's been fascinated by this horrific murder for a long time? Whenever we speak about murder and someone losing their life, especially looking way back, I think it's important to always start with the victim, the person who lost their life. Can, so, can I ask who was Patricia Kern? Well, in 1952,
0: Patricia Kern was 19 years of age. See, she was a, a student at Queen's University, she had just started. She intended to become a, a social worker, a hospital social worker. She had previously been at boarding school, and um, she was the daughter of um, High Court Judge Lancelot Curran, who was a, a former MP as well, he was a Unionist MP and a former Attorney General. Um, she, after boarding school, um, she took a year or so out and she worked um, really as a van driver for a, a local building company. And she was busy delivering uh, plumbing equipment, uh, toilets and sinks and that sort of thing. She was just really taking a year out there and some pocket money and gaining some experience.
1: Can we take the story to the evening she was found injured or or, or murdered or...
0: It was the 12th of November, 1952. Um, Patricia had been in Belfast. Um, she had planned to play squash. As it happened, um, I think the squash courts at Queen's were fully booked, um, so she never played the game. And she went for a coffee with her teenage friend John Steele, who she had only met a few weeks earlier. He then walked her to... Um, the bus station in Belfast. She caught the 5pm bus to White Abbey. Um, she was seen getting off the bus at about 5.20. She was found at around 2 o'clock, it was around 2 o'clock in the morning, on November 13th. Her body was found apparently by her brother Desmond, he was cradling her body. Um, she had been stabbed 37 times police officer who had been called about 10 minutes earlier, Constable Rutherford, he arrived on his bike. Um, And at that moment, the family solicitor, Malcolm Davison and his wife, also arrived and so when the police officer got there, Desmond had just found a body. She was um, down the laneway from the home and she was um, I think about 40 yards into Shrubbery. Police Officer Rutherford was of the opinion she was already dead. Nevertheless, Desmond believed she was still breathing. He thought he heard her breathing. I can remember bending down and uh, raising the body and hearing what sounded to me like like breathing. I I realise now it must have simply been air being expelled from the lungs. Um, And he, along with the judge and the solicitor, Malcolm Davidson, carried Patricia's body to the Triumph car. Seemed pretty obvious that she was dead. Rigor mortis had begun to set on, set in. They struggled, I think, to get the door of the car closed because of the rigor mortis and her legs. Um, and she was driven to the family doctor's house. He pronounced her dead. He thought she'd been dead for up to four hours. Later, there was a I think um, pathologist examined the, the body. A few hours later, around five o'clock. And he believes she'd been killed sometime between five o'clock and eleven o'clock, and she'd been stabbed thirty-seven times. She'd suffered a broken rib of one of the stab wounds. It was punctured lung, punctured her heart. It'd been a very violent attack.
1: Obviously, when someone is found uh, murdered, there's an investigation. But that investigation centred on a man, Ian Hay Gordon. Who was Ian Hay Gordon?
0: Well, first of all, can I just say the investigation didn't initially focus on Ian Hey Gordon. He wasn't one of the early suspects. Um, there were a number of early possible suspects during the course of the investigation. Um, some 40,000 people were interviewed. There were some 9,000 statements taken. Within a week of the inquiry, the RUC had brought in help from uh, Scotland Yard to senior detectives. But in the early days, um, there were a number of possible suspects. One was um, a man called Robert Taylor. He had been um, prosecuted for the violent murder of a Catholic woman. He was a loyalist himself from Tigers Bay. He had allegedly um, brutally murdered this Catholic woman after going to her looking for money. And the connection really with the Curran case was that it was Lance Curran who at the time was the Attorney General, Patricia's father, who had prosecuted Taylor. And Taylor eventually got off. He, he was acquitted of the murder. But one theory was that, uh, you know, Patricia may have been killed in revenge for for, for his prosecution. There were other suspects, keeping uh, the fray, one was a, a violent criminal whose whereabouts weren't quite known at that time. there was a, a psychiatric Patient who'd been at Hollywell. But really, in,
1: in the early days,
0: you know, the police were going nowhere. But eventually, the investigation turned to Ian
1: Hay Gordon. Who was Ian Hay Gordon? Ian Hay Gordon.
0: Well, he, he was a young RAF serviceman. He was about 20 years of age. Um, he was based at Camp Edenmore. He, he was, came from Scotland. He was doing his national service. And he was based at this camp just um, really. A uh, short distance from the Currents uh, home. Gordon was, he's variously described as a bit simple, uh, a loner, a bit of an oddball. He was the perennial butt of practical jokes at um, Eden and other camps where he had been based.
2: He was a strange boy, being so nervous, being so shy, it put other boys off rather than encouraged other boys to about
0: He was chaotically disorganised apparently um, but he had a connection to the Curran family. Um, he had met Desmond Curran at the uh, White Abbey Presbyterian Church. Desmond Curran the brother uh, was involved in a group called Moral Rearmament which was a sort of religious group concerned with uh, personal and public morality. It was an international movement but he, he saw Gordon, I think, is a potential recruit for this organisation. And he'd been introduced to him, I think, at the White Abbey Church Service, where Gordon attended regularly by um, Reverend uh, Sam Wiley, who was the minister at White Abbey Presbyterian. So, uh, Desmond, um, he befriended Ian Gordon and he took him on a couple of occasions, I think three occasions, to the family home. But nonetheless, it it was a connection to the current family, which uh, interested the police.
1: So, if we look at Gordon, and they found this odd ball, and again, this appears to me very much wrong time, wrong place, wrong person. And if you can find a weirdo, uh, he's in a vulnerable position. And they established that he had been in the home. You know, what more can we say about Gordon, which would have aroused the police's suspicions?
0: Gordon made a big mistake and in the in the immediate aftermath of the murder. Um, I think the RAF were aware that suspicion was likely to fall on Edenmore. And apparently, one of the RAF uh, sort of military police officers had basically told the guys at the camp um, make sure you get your, go- your story straight. Gordon apparently asked a number of, of servicemen had they seen him between the five o'clock and six o'clock. Um, they, he couldn't find anybody who, who uh, did. And he conspired with another uh, serviceman, Corporal Connor, to agree that they'd been together and spent some time together between 5 and 6 o'clock at the camp. As we were walking up, Gordon just said to me, if they asked us any questions, will you say me and you were together on the night of a question? I said, aye, yes. This proved to be a big mistake because Gordon later admitted that was a false... He hadn't been with um, Connor... And police seized, police seized on this. He had told a lie and um, given a false alibi. And uh, they obviously wondered if he lied about that. What else did he lie about? As it happened, unbeknownst to Gordon, there was someone who did see him. Uh, but he didn't know that. There was another serviceman, a man called um, James Spence from Sion Mills. And he, he gave it as, uh, that he did see Gordon around five and that he saw him around six o'clock and there was nothing unusual about his appearance. Um, had Gordon known that, he wouldn't have needed to get this false alibi with Connor.
1: So Ian Hay Gordon, he confessed. I mean, that's, that, that, he, that seems his second mistake.
0: Um, well, he says he, he didn't confess. It's, it's Superintendent Capstick's interest fell on Gordon, but he, he knew Gordon had lied, but he was also getting information about Gordon from sources, One of them was Reverend Wiley, who, uh, as well as being Gordon's chaplain, who was someone he, Gordon could confide in, was also a police source. But what the police knew about Gordon was really about his personal life, his sex life. Um, he had visited prostitutes in Belfast, and he had had relations with um, a barber called Wesley Courtney. And Wesley was well-known... in in the White Abbey area as a homosexual.
2: Wesley Courtney was actually a very sociable person. When I met him in White Abbey, he asked me to to go out with him. So we were around the back of of House, between House and the RF camp even more. So he wanted to to touch me, or me to touch him, and then he he wanted to go further.
0: Homosexuality, of course, in, in 1952 was still illegal. Gordon could have been prosecuted could have been, could have went to jail. He could certainly have been kicked out of the RAF in disgrace. He was questioned over three days, 13th, 14th and 15th of January. On the third day, Superintendent Capstick, the kind of wily tough Scotland Yard detective, spent three hours alone with Gordon and he interrogated him about his private life. The subjects was Capstick committed talking to him were masturbation, sodomy, and indecency. Gordon says that Capsick was telling me he was a a sick boy, he needed help, and they would get him help.
2: Russell kept saying, you've been a sick boy for a while. If if you don't confess, all your past sexual life will come out and it will kill your mother. And my mother had always meant a great deal for me. And I think the last thing that I wanted my mother to find out was things like being with Courtney and and being with prostitutes in a couple of cases in Belfast.
0: In the afternoon, Gordon. Well, the police said he confessed. He gave a voluntary confession, um, in which he basically admitted um, stabbing Patricia Curran. Capstick's version of events: Capstick took the confession. Was that Gordon simply told him what happened as best as he could remember, and Capstick took a note of it, longhand. Gordon's claim was that what happened was that Capstick put a series. Of scenarios to him, hypothetical situations. What if you you'd met Patricia Curran you'd, Patricia Curran said hello would you have spoken to her? Yes. Um, if she asked you to escort her up the dark driveway to her home would you have done so? Yes uh, I would And would you have asked it, it, would you have asked to kiss her? Would you have held her hand Would you have asked to kiss her? Gordon great, he might. But in Gordon's words, he was falling into a trap. These hypothetical questions which which Capstick were putting to him were then written down as fact that he had met her, that she had asked him to walk, walk up the laneway, and that he had asked her to kiss. And in his confession claimed that Patricia consented to a kiss. And she put her handbag and her portfolio of notes and so on on the ground, and... They kissed, and then um, she asked him to stop and to walk her back up the laneway. Gordon said he uh, he lost control. He started kept wanting to kiss her. Um, he may have touched her breast. Um, she called him a beast, threatened to uh, tell her father, and then, in his words, basically he 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 lost control and stabbed her with a knife. Um, his confession tied in with the police theory of what had happened at the time of the murder, which they believe to be 5.45. Gordon says that he was really browbeaten. He was, during the the interview sessions, which I think lasted some 19 hours over three days, that he was shouted at by police officers. I think it was nine different police officers at different times spoke to him, and it, basically he was all in, and they, they, they threatened to reveal um, details of his sex life some uh, of his, his sexuality and prostitution and so forth to his mother and I, I think he I recall Gordon telling me that uh, Capstick had told him this will kill your dear mother he wasn't a strong character everybody he knew Gordon knew he was not a resilient man he basically felt uh, that uh, this confession had been concocted by, by the police but they, they told him um, he claimed that um, if he signed it um, they would, he would be allowed to go, he allowed, he'd be released and I, He signed it. Um, but he claimed it wasn't voluntary confession.
1: But it was enough to get him convicted in, in court eventually.
0: It was, it was enough to get him uh, charged, it was enough to get him convicted guilty but insane was the, the final verdict. He had killed Patricia Curran but wasn't responsible for it. That uh, he was insane at the time, he had had this blackout,
1: and obviously that's a, that's a, a medical assessment. So you know, a psychiatrist would have to make that judgment. So
0: Gordon's defense team tried to have the confession ruled out, that the jury couldn't hear it, because they believed and argued that Gordon had been um, coerced into the, signing this confession that wasn't true. So basically it boiled down to Gordon's word against the word of the police officers who were present. Um, Gordon's legal team tried to have the confession uh, ruled inadmissible um, and they the, the judge, Lord uh, Chief Justice McDermott, ruled um, in the prosecution's favour.
1: Guilty but insane. And therefore he escaped the noose and he was sent then to... Uh an institution rather than prison.
0: Gordon's team tried to get him acquitted but once once the really the only evidence the only serious evidence against Gordon was his confession there was some identification evidence but wasn't really all that credible it wouldn't have been enough the key evidence was his confession there was no forensics linking him to the murder so basically the confession was all that the police had. Once it was ruled admissible then his defense really went for the um, possibility that if he had done it, he was insane at the time. And they called a, a specialist, a psychiatrist from London. Uh, in some ways, he did Gordon's case more harm than good in that he claimed to have administered a truth drug to Gordon and to uh, interview him in which Gordon made further confessions. He claimed that um, he was uh, obtaining uh, memory. Um, lost memory from Gordon, and he also claimed that Gordon was um, schizophrenic and suffering from hyper, uh, um, low blood pressure, which would explain, you know, the blackout. And he claimed that Gordon had could or did carry out the attack on Patricia while having uh, some sort of schizophrenic fit. Um, this was strange because later on, psychiatrists could find nothing wrong with Gordon. But at the time this evidence was presented by the defence, there was prosecution evidence uh, which described Gordon as a um, an inadequate psychopath, if I remember rightly. So this gave the, the jury an option of uh, finding Gordon not guilty of murder, then guilty but insane, which was technically uh, an acquittal that meant he wasn't responsible. but. A did mean he wouldn't go to the gallows; he wouldn't be hanged, um, but rather he he would be put in a, a in a mental institution.
1: I don't I don't know the right terminology for that kind of hospital at the time, but he was sent to I suppose what we might describe as a mental institution, mm-hmm. which he was eventually released from.
0: When he got there, though, um, really the, the medical staff could find nothing wrong with him, despite the evidence in court that Gordon is, was this um, psychopath or schizophrenic etc um, experienced doctors well used to deal with um, psychiatric illness could find no mental illness in Gordon and they found he wasn't insane he, he could have escaped at any time um, you know he was trusted to go around the gardens of the of the Holywell hospital and to go to farmers fields if this was really the dangerous, Psychopath, that, uh, as he'd been described in court, it seems very strange that he was given the freedom of, of the hospital. Around this time, there was, there was different campaigns. For, there was a lot of feeling that Gordon had been the victim of a miscarriage of justice and had effectively been framed. One of the leaders was a woman called Dorothy Turtle, who lived in Lisbon. She was a much-traveled, well-educated woman. Um, but there was also lawyers in London, um, Group called Justice, whose prominent figures included Hugh, Hugh Pierce and Frederick Lawton. And pressure was being put on the Stormont authorities that, um, you know, there's no evidence that this man is insane. One of the people opposing his release um, was Reverend Sam Wiley from White Abbey Presbyterian Church. I've, he, was, he had been one of the sources to um, the police supplying information about Gordon which led to the police suspicions of him. While he had been a chaplain to Gordon at Edenmore, he also visited him at Crumlin Road Prison. He he told the authorities that Gordon had confessed to him, and when Dorothy Turtle and other women um, campaigned for Gordon's release, they'll be known as do-gooders today, I suppose, um, he basically threatened them that he had this confession and that he had a written confession from gordon and that uh, they should back off because gordon was quite comfortable at the moment in hollywell he had nice little cushy jobs in the hospital he had the freedom but um if they convinced the authorities that he was not insane he could be transferred to crumlin road jail um Wiley never produced this this confession. The, the, the women spoke to Gordon, he said he had um, contacted Wiley, but said nothing incriminating. There was pressure on the Stormont authorities. They had a problem. They knew by that time that there was no evidence that he was insane. They knew. I think the official line was that Gordon was receiving treatment appropriate to his condition. But eventually the pressure on the Stormont Authorities um, became uh, so great that the case could have become an embarrassment that they decided to to release him. It was was done in a very secretive way. Gordon would be released quietly. He'd be taken back to Scotland, provided he didn't talk about it, and he changed his name. So Gordon himself knew nothing of this. The first he knew about it, I understand, was one day in August 1960, when he was told to pack his things. Um, He was flown from Belfast to Glasgow, it was Glasgow under the name Cameron, I like think John Cameron. A job was found for him at um, William Collins, the publishing group in Glasgow. I think he was given £2,000 from what I read, and he was found a flat. I um, think it's well to say he was not completely a model citizen. He was did not lead an entirely blameless life. Um, he was in the 60s in Glasgow convicted of. Three offences of indecency,
1: basically flashing. But he was eventually, many years later, he was eventually acquitted. How, how did his acquittal come about?
0: Over the years, there were, there were many people who campaigned for Gordon. Justice group I've referred to, um, some Quaker activists. But then in 1995, a BBC producer and director called Bruce Batten, he became interested in the case. He had been researching another film um, on the Princess Victoria disaster, and he kept... Seeing reports on the Gordon case and the Curran murder, and it fascinated him. And he began working on a documentary for BBC Northern Ireland, a Home Truth documentary about the Curran case. He was able to track down Gordon in Glasgow, and he was also able to trace um, Desmond Curran, the brother, where he was now working as a uh, he was now a priest in, in uh, a township in Cape Town, um, South Africa. Um, Remarkably he brought Desmond Curran and Ian Gordon together in Belfast and they spoke about the case and he told us this incredible story of um, how Desmond Curran himself had been a suspect and how Gordon was convicted really in this rather dubious confession and what happened to him. And it really kicked off um, another campaign to get justice for Ian Gordon. But Gordon's supporters and Gordon came across one major obstacle. His conviction of guilty but insane was technically an acquittal and he had no right of appeal. He, Although the, the, the verdict found that he had carried out the murder, it found that he wasn't criminally responsible because he was insane at the time. So the Criminal Cases Review Commission found that they couldn't investigate the case because technically Gordon was acquitted. And eventually it took a change in the law and I think the government realised there was many influential supporters in London who realised that this law was, you know, absolutely absurd. Um, Ian Gordon was kind of the victim of triple injustices. He would, he'd be found really to have carried out a crime which, which he didn't commit. He was then found to be insane, which he wasn't. And thirdly, he wasn't allowed to appeal. And eventually, by 1999... The law was amended to allow Gordon the right to appeal that verdict. And eventually, um, the original verdict was quashed. That, I, mean, I mean, that
1: is absolutely and utterly extraordinary.
0: Well, it is when you look back on it, because basically, you had this man committed apparently a psychopath who killed this young woman in a blackout. Now, it could have been much worse for the Northern Ireland authorities, if you can imagine, had Gordon been actually found guilty of the murder. They would have sent a young RAF serviceman to his death. He could have been hanged.
1: Coming up in the next episode of The Bell Tale. If Ian Hay Gordon didn't kill Patricia, then who did? And how did Desmond Curran, Patricia's brother, go from being an upper-class Presbyterian barrister to a Catholic priest living in shantytown poverty? And why? Why? This episode of The Bell Tell was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, sound designed by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from the Belfast Telegraph and the BBC. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a €75 O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.